0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
1: Today on the pod, we're looking under the hood of the region's economic engine and hearing about what economies in the Asia and Pacific need to do to shift up a gear. We'll be hearing about the massive increase in average wealth in Asia over the last 25 years.
0: It has meant a remarkable increase in general living standards and equally importantly, a sharp cut, a sharp reduction in poverty rate.
1: About the slowdown in the Pacific.
2: Of course, every time these disasters happen, that of course knocks down GDP, but it also has a lingering effect right there. The need to reconstruct, for example, pushes out government debt
0: and puts a lot of pressure on the government budget.
1: And what the region needs to do to level up and drive forward.
0: Unless the playing field is reasonably level, these kinds of innovations will never make it to the market. And that will really prevent Asia from moving toward a more innovative and high-tech economy.
1: Stay with us. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig deeper into the public policy challenges facing the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Martin Pierce. We often hear it said that the 21st century is the Asia-Pacific century. The Asian Development Bank, for instance, estimates that by 2050, half of the world's economic output will come from Asia, thanks largely to the rise of powerhouses like China and India. But what has this economic shift so far meant for the countries of Asia? What about the countries of the Pacific, which in recent years have been left grinding their gears while Asia powers ahead? And what will it take to ensure that the Asia-Pacific century doesn't fall by the wayside? Helping answer these questions on the pod today are two leading economists from the Asian Development Bank, also known as the ADB. The ADB recently published its flagship Asian Development Outlook report for 2017, which pulls apart the economic data from the region and predicts how countries of the Asia Pacific will grow and develop in the years ahead. Joining me to discuss the report's findings and recommendations are Dongyoung Park and Roland Raja. Professor Dongyoung Park is the principal economist from the ADB's Economic Research and Regional Cooperation Department. Roland Raja is an economist from the ADB's Pacific Liaison and Coordination Office in Sydney. Don't forget, if you have any thoughts on today's podcast, you can always reach us on Twitter, where we are at Apps Policy Forum, or find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. We'd love to hear what you have to say. But for now, let's have a listen to that discussion. Dongyan and Roland, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank, Thank you for having
0: us. Yeah, great to be here.
1: Dongyan, perhaps we could start by telling us, if you could start by telling us a little about the Asian Development Outlook report. What is it and how is it used?
0: Uh, it's ADB's annual flagship report. It comes out twice a year in uh, early April and early October And uh, its main uh, role is to provide macroeconomic forecasts for the region as a whole and look at the uh, economic situation and prospects of individual countries. And finally, it contains a special theme chapter, which looks at a longer-term structural issue uh, that's relevant for developing Asia's future.
1: And that theme this year is transcending the middle-income challenge. What is the middle-income challenge and why is that important?
0: It's important at this point in time because as recently as a quarter century or just 25 years ago, more than 90% of developing Asia's population lived in low-income countries uh, as recently as 1991, as a matter of fact. But by 2015, more than 95% of our region's population now live in middle-income countries. That is why we decided to take a deeper look at what Asia must do to make the next transition from middle income to high income.
1: What exactly do we mean when we talk about low income or middle income?
0: Uh, these are uh, defined on basis of per capita income. So, of course, World Bank and other data sources have different cutoff points, but these are solely defined in terms of a per capita GDP.
1: That change that you talked about going from low income to middle income, that's a pretty incredible transformation over the course of 24 years or so, what has that change meant for the region?
0: It has meant a remarkable increase in general living standards and equally importantly a sharp cut, a sharp reduction in poverty rate across the region. Uh, Poverty has fallen more rapidly in our part of the world than in any other parts of the developing world.
1: Roland, turning to you and talking about the Pacific, one of the key messages from the report was that economic growth in the region has taken a big downwards turn. Um, mostly due to Papua New Guinea. What's been going on in Papua New Guinea?
2: Thanks. Uh, Well, Papua New Guinea is a commodity exporting uh, economy, and it's been hit very hard by the downturn in in global commodity prices. But more than that, also, there's a certain natural dynamic to the slowdown in PNG's economy. In in 2014, there was the construction associated with the big LNG project going on there. And then in 2015, all of that production for LNG came online. So once that's into the base of GDP, by, by its nature, GDP will would naturally GDP growth would naturally slow down uh, going going forward that explains a large part of the the shift in what's happened in PNG but of course the global commodity price downturn has created a lot of extra pressure on the budget on the exchange rate and that and that hasn't helped
1: in Timor-Leste the report highlights the impact of local elections on economic growth what's the relationship between those two things
2: mm. well in Timor-Leste's economy, the annual year-to-year developments in the economy really depend on what happens with government spending. Government spending is about 130% of, of GDP. So what happens with government spending determines what happens uh, in the economy. And basically our forecast is premised on the, the sense that due to the elections and the uncertainty created by, by the elections, that would slow down the implementation of v- the very large public investment projects that are a, a part of the budget. But also a number of private investment projects as well would probably, we would expect, maybe slowed and put on hold for a little while, while the elections uh, are left to iron out. And then, but by 2018, we'd expect growth to pick back up as those things come back online.
1: Okay, turning to Fiji, Cyclone Winston had a big impact on the country's growth. How much of a role do natural disasters play in determining growth rates in the Pacific? I'm not thinking it just of the cyclone, but also of drought in PNG.
2: Yeah, I mean, it has a very big, very big impact. The Pacific is one of the most vulnerable regions in the world to, to natural disasters, and as well as uh, as well as climate change. And, and as we all know, those two things go together, and and climate change will lead to more natural disasters in the future. So the Pacific is highly vulnerable. I think Vanuatu, for example, is rated by the UN as the most vulnerable uh, nation in the world to to these kinds of nat- natural disaster risks. And of course, every time these disasters happen, that of course knocks down GDP. But it also has a lingering effect, right? The need to reconstruct, for example, um, pushes up uh, government debt and puts a lot of pressure on the government budget, for example. But the high levels of uncertainty as well um, deters private investment. Uh, More sort of routine uh, year-to-year damage to a lot of infrastructure assets as well due to the variable climate also then runs down those assets and their economic usefulness. And that also crimps the sort of underlying uh, growth rate.
1: Dr. Young, turning back to the middle income challenge, the enormous shift you talked about there in economic prosperity has occurred in just one generation, but I imagine it also involved at times some fairly jarring social change as well. Has the speed of transformation brought about many new problems for societies across the region?
0: Well, there's been a tremendous uh, uh, amount of urbanization and the shift from agriculture to manufacturing and services. So that kind of structural shift has been truly massive. But at the same time, the middle income challenge uh, is all about shifting sources of growth from more more labor, more capital, and more inputs to uh, growth, which is more based on productivity. And in turn, the main source of productivity will increasingly be innovation rather than borrowing technology from advanced countries. And this kind of innovative economy, which Asia must shift gears to if it's uh, to become high income, uh, will be based on a skilled labor force or better human capital, as well as uh, more and better infrastructure, in particular infrastructure such as ICT and uh, broadband and internet networks.
1: The report also highlights the risks surrounding global trade and tax policies. Does this include a potential trade war between the US and China? And if so, what would that mean for the Asia-Pacific region?
0: I think that is going uh, too far at this point in time, because despite some of the uh, rhetoric that, uh, that's that been coming out from some advanced economies, uh, <laughs> there has not been any concrete moves uh, toward uh, greater protectionism as of now. Of course, um, in the unlikely event, and we still feel it's unlikely because there's self-interest involved also for all parties, so that, I think, will deter uh, major countries from pursuing uh, uh, protectionism uh, to an excessive degree, I think, because of that constraint. uh, uh, these kinds of uh, extreme protectionism uh, will is unlikely to happen. So we tend to be quite optimistic on that front.
1: Finally, a question for both of you. Drawing on the things that you've learned from the report, if you could get all policymakers in the region to do just one thing, what would it be? I'll start with you, Roland, for The Pacific. Oh,
2: thank you. I guess uh, I guess there would be the recognition that the Pacific is always going to be hit by shocks from, from year to year. And so the key is always to be prepared for that, have the fiscal policy uh, in a sustainable situation, building up the policy buffers to be able to withstand those shocks. But also in terms of disaster preparedness and, and mainstreaming disaster risk reduction is all policies and programs in the country, recognizing that all,
1: the next shock is always just around the corner. Yeah, very important things. What about you, Dong? Uh, if you had just one recommendation for Asia's leaders?
0: Well, it's to loosen the uh, excessively close links between government and the big business that still unfortunately characterizes many countries in the region. What that will do, it is going to create a more level playing field for new new companies, new entrepreneurs, new firms. And these are really the biggest and most powerful sources of innovation. They have the fresh, uh, fresh ideas, new products, new technology, new services. But unless the playing field is reasonably level, these kinds of innovations will never make it to the market and that will really prevent Asia from moving toward a more innovative and uh, high-tech economy.
1: You've certainly painted a very interesting picture of a go-ahead region. Thanks so much for your time at Dongyuan Park. Roland Rajan. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Dongyang Park and Roland Raja from the Asian Development Bank talking with me there, and a huge thanks to both of them for their time. So, joining me now for the post pod roundup is Policy Forum's Nikki Lovegrove. Nikki, what was your biggest takeaway from the discussion?
3: Well, I was really struck by what they were saying of the enormity of the wealth change in Asia that has occurred. Over the last 25 years, they mentioned that in 1991, about 90% of the population lived in so-called low-income countries, but now it's 95% of the population who live in middle-income countries. And I really think that that ties into what we've been hearing about this shift in economic power towards the Asian region. And I guess that's really interesting for me, thinking about the kind of social change that must accompany that economic shift.
1: Yeah, I was really struck by Roland's comments talking about natural disasters and climate change and how, you know, climate-related events are only expected to worsen. That strikes me as a really serious challenge for policymakers in the Pacific, as well as donor countries like Australia.
3: Yeah, that's right. And I think looking at this shift in economic power, it's not only countries like Australia, it's also countries like China, which are increasingly playing um, an economic and donor role in the Pacific. But
1: Nikki, you're not just here to talk about today's interview with the economists from the ADB. You're here to give us a bit of a sneak preview about the next Policy Forum pod, which we've got coming up, which is an interview you did with the world-famous philosopher and bioethicist, Professor Peter Singer. What was it like to sit down and chat with Peter Singer?
3: Well, I have to say I was very excited to do that interview. I'm a big fan of Peter Singer's work. I've Read a number of his pieces, including his book, uh, Animal Liberation and How Are We to Live? Um, And in that, it was a short discussion, but in it, I got to ask him some fairly big questions about his work on effective altruism, his thoughts on the intersection between ethics and politics, and also what he thinks of the Trump administration so far. Here's a little bit of that interview. I think this is clearly...
2: The direction that uh, the United States is going in at the moment and it's something that Donald Trump made clear as a candidate that he was going to put America first and we now see what the impact of that is and I think that it is clearly unethical to disregard the interests of other nations.
1: Well, I certainly look forward to that and Nikki, thanks very much for giving us a sneak peek of that upcoming podcast. I'm looking forward to hearing what else Peter Singer has to say about global politics in general. On the topic of podcasts, you may remember that last time around, we interviewed Dr. Babatundi Oshati-Mann, is the Executive Director of the UNFPA, the United Nations Population Fund. We did that interview with Professor Sharon Bessel from Crawford School of Public Policy. In the days after we put that interview out... UNFPA was front and centre on the world's headlines because the Trump administration announced that it was pulling funding to the agency, uh, funding that amounted to $75 million in 2015. Nikki, that is an enormous amount of money for the agency to lose.
3: That's right. And the United States, I understand, justified this decision by claiming that the UNFPA has been involved in so-called coerced abortions in China I think so far there's been very little evidence to indicate that that's the case. But regardless, you're right, it is a very significant amount of money to lose. And there is a statistic that every day 830 women and girls die in childbirth. And I can't imagine that reducing money to the UN agency that works on sexual and reproductive health and rights will do anything to help this figure.
1: That really is a staggering number, isn't it? In the uh, aftermath of the announcement, Sharon Bessel, who did the interview with me on the podcast last time around, has written a piece for Policy Forum where she looks at the announcement and In particular, she details the fact that this isn't the first time that the US has pulled funding to the UNFPA, but she also has a look at what the potentially devastating impacts of losing that money will be. It's well worth a read. Well, that's all we've got time for on the podcast today. Don't forget, we would love to hear your thoughts on everything that was discussed. And you can reach us on Twitter, where we are at Apps Policy Forum, or find us on Facebook, give us a thumbs up, or the angry face, or the smiley face, or whatever kind of face you want to direct towards us. You can find us on Facebook, where we are Asia-Pacific Policy Society. Don't forget, for all the latest in public policy in the Asia-Pacific region, There's always policyforum.net, where this week we've also taken a look at China's groundwater crisis and uh, a piece on India's landmark maternity leave scheme, both well worth a read. We'll be back next week with Nikki's interview with Peter Singer, but until then, cheerio. Mm